0: Welcome to this week's edition of The Vasee View. This is my regular podcast where I explore the links between tech and public policy. And I sometimes go on tour. I go on virtual tours. I've been to France. I've been to Estonia. I've been to Holland. I've been to Israel, looking at how these countries put together their tech policies. And sometimes I take a deep dive into a sector like agritech or cybersecurity. And sometimes I talk to big picture policy thinkers like Benedict Evans or Tony Blair or Malcolm Turnbull. I'm delighted to be joined today by Natasha de Turan and Gottfried Liebrandt, who are the authors of a book called The Payoff, how changing the way we pay changes everything. Without payments, money doesn't work. And if the system stops working, so does the world as we know it. From pensions to pocket money, the global payment system affects us all, yet most of us have no idea how it functions, which includes... Me, so I actually, I asked Natasha to send me the book and I read it and I would have thought that a book about money and how it works could be unbelievably dull, but actually it's a rip-roaring read. I read it in a day while on holiday and it does uh, reveal the importance of money and it's not something that we think enough about, the physical or indeed digital infrastructure that underpins how we transfer wealth As it were, and how important it is, and how it's changing. And obviously, given this podcast, what the public policy implications might be for governments going forward. So I just wondered if I could ask each of you, you're both on this podcast, it's not common that I do a double podcast, but if you could just each of you introduce each other and also tell us why you decided to write the book.
1: I can start. So uh, Gottfried Leibrand, I've, I've been in payments, I think for, uh, for most of my life. I started out as a management consultant with McKinsey and that's where I, yeah, by complete chance, found myself working on engagements in banks that uh, looked at the payment system uh, when payments were still extremely dull, et cetera. Um, and I have sort of kept that up after, after I think, 17 years at McGinsey. I switched to industry, joined Swift, which does uh, payments between banks. And we, can, we can talk about that later. Ended up as CEO there, stepped down from that two years ago. And then, among other things, uh, joined a few boards, et cetera. But I also decided to do what I wanted to do for a long time, is write a book on payments. And why is it, the, the real reason is just because I find them very interesting. So I started writing that book before COVID even, but then COVID provided a good excuse to keep going, uh, I think. And at some stage, I showed a draft to Natasha, who I knew from, uh, from Swift, of course, where we cooperated. And Natasha said, mm, yeah, this is very interesting. But if you want to write a book about payments, why don't we write a really interesting book about payments? So thank you. Um, but to her credit, she helped me uh, turn that into, and we both uh, co-authored a book uh, as it is right now, which doesn't just tell you how it works, which is what I find interesting, but also uh, how it touches upon every every aspect of our lives, and most of all, how it's changing faster than ever before. And And that last thing, I just can't emphasize too much. It's a world that is, I've seen more change in the last five years in payments than in the 35 years before that. Um, so it really is changing fast. Of course, at the risk of making the book outdated the moment it will hit the shelves. At the same time, it, uh, it hopefully paints a good picture of, of what's in store and what's already happened. Natasha.
2: So I come from a very different background to Godfrey, just sort of failed our historian. I've spent about 30 years in the financial markets. But it wasn't until I joined SWIFT about 10 years ago that I started to ask the question, how does money move? Um, and interestingly enough, when I when I joined SWIFT, I was asked by many of my former colleagues to tell them what happened there when I got there, because they also didn't know uh, what SWIFT did or how money moved, uh, which I found completely fascinating. My own ignorance um, in masses financial and um, technical never surprises me, but the extent of the lack of understanding and the lack of curiosity about how the, the system actually worked from the movement of money side, I found fascinating. I also found, as, as Godfrey said, that the very richness of payments and how, how it touches on every part of our lives, incredible. And I found it astounding, really, that we all rely on money, we all work to earn money, maybe to save it and, and to pass it on. But all of that relies on our ability to move it. And yet it's just not something that people think about. Yeah, it's true.
0: I mean, we think about whether the train is delayed, but we don't think about how we're going to get uh, money from one jurisdiction to the other. And indeed, the complications. I mean, I come across it weirdly because, you know, my mother is a US citizen as well as a British citizen. And she got, you know, and I uh, have relatives in the US and occasionally they will send me a cheque. And the process of trying, you know, Donald Trump sent my mother a cheque in the uk and the process of trying to cash the donald's check was unbelievable so i've always been fascinated about how difficult it is that weirdly to transfer money between the states but i mean d- just quickly before we move on to i want to pick up particularly on uh how things are changing so fast in the last five years but i let's talk about plumbing because everyone has heard of swift and in fact when you are doing an international transfer people ask for your swift code and your iban code and i of course Obviously have no idea what these are really, and nor do I suspect 99 percent of our listeners so if if you want to give us a quick and show us why it's so interesting, because obviously Gottfried, as you indicated, you got into this terrible cul-de-sac at McKinsey where they shoved you into the most boring industry they could find, which you then discovered was actually fascinating. Make Swift sexy, Gottfried.
1: Oh, okay, so what makes it sexy? A, a bit of background. One one of the things about payment systems is that they have historically been very national. Exactly. Each country tends to have its own version, and you encounter that with the checks, which is a purely U.S. phenomena, to a lesser extent British. I've had people in, in Holland and Belgium who told me the same. They, they got these checks from the U.S. There's no <laughs> bank who even is willing to touch them anymore. I mean, they just that's right. You can't just no. We don't do that. They're incredibly they're incredibly national. So that that uh, that's one challenge. The other one is each country has its own currency. In the euro, we've been spoiled. In the eurozone, we've been spoiled with a single currency. Uh, but once you step outside the eurozone, you will find that each country has its own. And the banks have always faced the challenge on how do you how do you make payments work across currencies and across borders and connect these different systems. They do that through a system of correspondent banking. And basically, they hold accounts with each other. That way, money never leaves the country. So really what happens if you pay somebody in another country, your bank will take your money. And then they say you want to send that from the UK to, let's say, the US. Then they will look for another bank in the U.S. where they have a dollar account. And that way, they can then ask that correspondent, as it's called in the U.S., to, on their behalf, pay out the dollars. And that way, money never leaves the country because the bank in the U.K. will take in your pounds. The bank in the U.S. will pay out the dollars. And sooner or later, there has to be a transaction the other way of dollars being moved between those banks for pounds any other way. So they they use that system to connect all these closed loops through mutual accounts, and that's the way it's done. And that involves, uh, in the old days, they used to send each other telexes. So the banks would send a telex. If you remember what that is, it's a remote typewriter for those people who, who who were born after me. Uh, but essentially, you type you type in one country, and there was, there was a machine in another country that would spit out ribbons with text.
0: I'm old enough to remember the telex. That's a big there
1: we go big moment. So the banks would would send each other these these instructions: pay out on behalf of this customer, so and so, that amount of money to that customer in that account. So these were fairly complex telex uh, messages. Um, And in the 60s, as cross-border payments started to grow, people drowned in telexes, more or less. And they said, there's got to be a better way. And they found a better way in an electronic network, much like the airlines built an electronic reservation system in those same days. So every bank replaced their telex with a swift terminal. And over an electronic network, all these messages were sent back and forth. could be stored by swift so a japanese bank might enter their instructions when it was still night in the us when the us woke up they could receive those instructions retrieve them and then pay out pay out the money and that's what swift did it was an electronic network to carry those instructions uh, but they also managed to standardize those instructions make sure that they were the same over the whole world they gave each bank a unique code that started out as the swift code and that later became what's now known as the BIC. but it's essentially the old Swift code, which is nothing more than a phone number of the bank, if you will, just identifies mm-hmm. each bank in the world. They they were also instrumental in standardizing account numbers, the IBANs that we have in, in Europe, which is a way to standardize account numbers across countries. So they did a lot on, in terms of making that work, standardizing the rules and, and facilitating those, those banks.
0: But the fundamental system remains the same. The money stays in each jurisdiction. Yeah. It gets paid out by corresponding banks. But when you, say, when you say there's been so much change in the last five years, I mean, one thinks of the big fintech unicorns. In the UK, it would be companies like Revolut and Wise, and obviously in the US, Stripe. These are all effectively people who've driven a coach and horses through SWIFT.
1: Nah, but but let, let's first start. I mean, When we talk about unicorns, it's also good to realize that we live in a global uh, mm-hmm. world. The biggest change, I think, in my mind, has happened in China. And it's always good to, to point to that one. In China, we've got two unicorns, Alipay and TenPay, that in terms of sheer transactions, between them do more transactions, electronic payments than the rest of the world combined. Yeah? So it's, it's, it's hard to overstate what's happening in China. In less than Five or maybe seven years, they went from zero to being the world's biggest payment market in terms of, of sheer volume.
0: And these are essentially—they've configured it so that the Chinese consumer can do everything on this app.
1: They can pay. They can pay. They've added lending yeah. to yeah. it, investment services, uh, but it's combined with the ordering of Alibaba, of the the chat function of uh, of uh, WeChat. So they've they've sort of made whole ecosystems of which payments are an integral part. But it's grown to a size that we, uh, we probably find hard to imagine here. So that's when, when we talk about fintech, it's always good to, to remember that. Yes. In the West, we've gone and they have they've really reinvented payments because these guys are not banks. They do it outside of the banking system. People will transfer money into Alipay and then you can pay whoever you want with those, with those credits. The U.S. has gone a different way. The U.S. has sort of taken the card system, the credit cards, the debit cards that we always had and put those in wallets. Uh, That's what PayPal does. At the end of it, it's still a credit card transaction, but they put this wallet and good user experience around it. But under the hood, it is still the card rails as the payment aficionados will uh, will call it. But they've they've taken that to much greater heights. Uh, If you look at Stripe and Square, both what they've done, they've enabled essentially anybody to become a credit card recipient. In the old day, you had to be a real business. You had to have a bank account and all these things. And these guys have allowed anybody, you can you can mail order one of these dongles. And in the case of Stripe, you can just integrate it into any website. And anybody can just accept card payments, which is quite a revolution. So that's what's, what's driven these guys. Again, the funny thing is the differences between countries aren't going away. There are still differences between countries. They, they move into the new age in, in different ways. So that's what's changing there. The, the world of cross-border is, is still an interesting one because at the, at the end, it still has to go through these correspondent banks. But what a lot of people have done is build front-ends where for small amounts, they will just use presence in different countries to pay out the retail, the retail money. So if you want to wire $100 to the US, people like Revolut and Wise, they will take in your pounds. Their US subsidiary will immediately pay out the dollars. And then they will settle the balance, again, through the banking system. Once these balances build up, at the end of the day, they may have a million going one way. That is then sent through good old correspondent banking.
0: So essentially, Natasha, what is happening here is that in the West, you've simply got a price competition going on where people are just offering transactions, international transactions at a lower price than the traditional banks, whereas in China, you've got a genuine revolution in how people pay for things.
2: I think that I think that's true, but I don't think it's just price. And some of the stuff that, when you look at how deep Stripe has gone into commerce now, yeah, it, it's absolutely it's extraordinary. And one sort of sitting back, you think, "Gosh, well, why didn't banks do that before?" Exactly. That's
0: the key point. Why didn't how? This is what I can't get my head around Stripe. Partly because I'm sort of insanely jealous. Because when I was a minister, I met these kids when they were sort of twenty-two, and I look back on it sort of ten years ago, thinking, "Why didn't I resign on the spot and offer myself up to Stripe?" <laughs> But the other thing that sort of slightly perplexes me about Stripe is there's always the line, "Oh, it's just seven lines of code." How, how do you build a fifty billion dollar company on seven lines of code? I and mean, there's
2: probably a bit. There's probably a bit more now. <laughs> I, th- I think what's what's very interesting in the in the China case um, is that you have this huge these two hugely efficient pay, payment systems, Tencent and Alipay, from which yes, you can transfer money from one to the other, but you need to pay to do so so that's not i think a scenario that we're going to see happen in the west we're sort of there in a sense with a card duopoly that um you know with visa and mastercard but obviously we can we can transfer money freely between between those without a problem but the innovation in the west has probably has been more around the edges and yes as you say on price it's Mm. making it's made the acceptance of money much easier particularly in, in you know in the case of stripe and square and paypal and then it's been competition, but we haven't actually changed the way we're paying. We're still using cards or ACHs or or, or otherwise. Whereas in China, it's different.
1: And, and then just to add on the price though, I mean, we, Yes, in China, you pay if you move it from one of the apps to the others. I think it's a fee of Mm 0.1%. We should not forget that for a merchant in China, the payments are close to free. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas in the West, whether you use Stripe or anything else, the typical merchant will still pay something between one and 2% on each car transaction. And most of the competition of Stripe and Square has been on convenience on allowing people to accept payments who weren't allowed to do that before. But price-wise, I don't think much has changed. And that's because the underlying business model of cards with interchange, as it's called, going from acquiring bank to issuing bank, it's a technicality, but that has kept the price for merchants um, still quite high, uh, especially by international standards.
0: Why is that? Why isn't there more price competition? If Stripe can, you know, I I totally appreciate what Natasha said, that the seven lines of code (laughs) is a bit of an exaggeration. So in terms of two stages, first of all, Visa and Mastercard should have done Stripe. They should have just made it easier for merchants to receive in inverted commas credit card payments. They didn't. Stripe disrupts them. Why is there now not disruption on price? Why does the kind of one to two percent transaction fee? Why is that being maintained?
2: Well, I don't. I don't know that it's right to say that Stripe's disrupt, disrupted Mastercard and Visa. I think it's it's so far it's probably made their position stronger <laughs>
0: because. Oh, I see what you mean, yeah. Because everyone can accept them. But it takes a turn. It, it's there in terms of ensuring. It's created a new marketplace, which perhaps others should have created. The banks should have created. Perhaps the banks. Anyway, let's not display down that rabbit hole. What about the price? Why, why are they still getting away with 1% to uh,
1: 2%? There's long discussions on that. That's, that's an industry practice almost. They're both Visa and MasterCard. The change level that goes between effectively the bank of the merchant and the bank of the holder or whoever sits behind that. There's been legal challenges to that. In in Europe, that interchange has been lowered by the European Commission. They've lowered it 0.3%, if I'm, uh, if I'm not mistaken. By the way, one of the first things the UK did when they left the EU was to say, hmm, we're no longer bound by that now that we're not, not in the EU. It's an interesting one. Uh, but in the EU, they've lowered that. Um, the Americans have never have never done that. There have been legal challenges. I think in the end they settled. And I think at the end of the day, everybody found that practice quite useful, right? I mean, there's there's an amount of money being made. Ultimately, the consumer pays in the form of higher prices in stores. But it is a way to to make the industry uh, profitable, and uh, yeah, everybody
2: except the merchant wins. It'll be interesting with open banking if open banking can can make some headway. In in terms of person to person and person to payment business, if we if we start using it when we go into the local co-op in Sainsbury's to, to transfer money, then the money arrives immediately in the merchant's account and they pay no commission. Then you'd think that, that would that would incentivize people to move the merchants to move away from card acceptance to to open banking. But right now, the facilities for them to do that aren't really there. So let's
0: talk about the paradox we've, we've touched on government by Gottfried mentioning uh, the commission driving down the charges of the credit card companies. So this is where government does come in. And Natasha, you mentioned open banking. And again, you get this sort of paradox and the this kind of sequential staging, which is Europe in the past was a very fragmented market. Therefore, the US could dominate and dominates with the duopoly of Mastercard and Visa because those companies were able to grow in the U.S. market and effectively create the credit card market, which they now continue to dominate. Europe and the European Union has now come along with a series of effectively financial services initiatives, which include things like the Payment Services Directive and Open Banking, which in theory, I guess, gives Europe and fintech startups in Europe the chance to really innovate. And again, speaking as a layman, it does seem to me that in terms of how one interacts with banking services as a consumer in Europe, we are well ahead of the US in terms of, you know, a lack of bureaucracy, much more innovation and so on. But that's just my impression. So tell us about the implications of things like open banking and the payment services directive. Tell us what they are and why they're important.
1: The, the background of it is that you can you can um, wind back a little bit. I think one of the complaints of uh, startups and fintechs have always been, yes, it's very nice that we compete with banks, but customers will not move their account. Customers will keep their money with the bank, yeah, um, exactly. and that makes it very hard for us to compete. And, and because they have the account, they have access to information, and they're sort of keeping that closed. So then came open banking, and the idea behind that is that as a customer, I can keep my money with my bank but I can use a FinTech or a service provider to move that money or get information on my balances and my transactions and use that to get other services. For example, if I apply for a loan, I can force my bank to give up my transaction history and that way the loan provider can make a good credit score on uh, on me. Or if I buy something, I can use uh, an intermediary through who I buy to instruct my bank to transfer the money. And a good example of a player using this is, for example, Klarna, one of the the rare European uh, unicorns, if you will. They provide credit services at the point of sale. So you can, if you buy something through Klarna, you can uh, pay in stages. But they're also using open banking because Klarna will then instruct my bank to make the payments whenever they're due. So they are actually making use of that open banking through what's called an API to the bank application programming interface but it's a way for a third party with my permission to make a payment on my behalf directly from my my bank account Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the the idea is that you can split payments from holding the account at the end of the day and that creates a lot of opportunity Uh, now europe does not have the monopoly on that in the us it's helping as it's happening as well it's a little less sophisticated because they don't have legislation mandating it but what they will do there's now one or two specialist companies, the best known of that is Plaid. And what they have done for each bank, they know how the electronic banking and the mobile app of that bank works. Mm -hmm. They get my login credentials and they use that to access my account. And they can do the same. They then have access to my transaction data. They can initiate payments on my behalf, basically using the mobile banking interface. The the, the advantage of Europe is that it's more standardized. It's easier for, uh, for fintechs. The country that, may, that has gone furthest in this, by the way, is India. In India, they have what's called the uh, Uniform Payment Interface, UBI, uh, or Universal, I don't know what the U stands for. But uh, that has taken that same idea of giving other parties access to my bank, but there they have mandated also the interface to be standardized. So each bank has to allow people in in exactly the same way. And that makes it very easy for third parties to access accounts across multiple banks. And the, the the amount of payments that are initiated through that is, I think, doubling every three or four months. The growth rates are tremendous. They're starting much lower than China, uh, but they're catching up fast. Uh, so they've taken that to the extreme.
0: So what kind of innovation are you seeing in India that's going to sort of transform you know, what your average customer is experiencing?
1: Well, the interesting thing is one of the players that has really driven up uh, uh, uptake in India has been Google with Google Wallet. Um, And that gets to the discussion in Europe right now, which is, ah, we always thought that European fintechs would be the beneficiaries. But of course, nothing prevents big tech to do the same game. And they have every incentive to do that. They already have the customer. They have the technology skills to make it happen. And then they can use that to further enrich their data, provide you more services. And, oh, yeah, banking is just a part of it. And you keep your bank account, but we effectively manage it on your behalf and give you the interface, et cetera. And we don't even need to become a bank.
0: Which is presumably what Apple is doing with Apple Pay as well.
1: That is, in a way, what what Apple Pay is doing and what Amazon Pay and Google Pay are all trying to do. Yeah.
2: One of the things I find fascinating about where things are going at the moment is when you think about open banking, what it seeks to do is to open up all that wealth of information that banks have on us so that that information can be used more competitively for us to get better products and services. Now think about how much information Stripe has on its customers. And actually it's going really deep into a customer's business. It might be doing invoicing, payroll, and could be doing all sorts of things. And so actually it's going to end up in a future with far more information than banks ever had. And so one of the policy questions that will be coming down the line is how to deal with these mega platforms, the, you know, Stripe, Square, Adyen, and so forth. Now, what they're doing is fantastic, but you're still, you're, you're getting an equally, uh, actually a much larger, very much larger, because it's an international, you know, they're, they're all operating globally. And they have this, they will be building up these big stacks of information to which no one else will have the same access. So there's
0: going to be this sort of unusual relationship because the Google Pay is still going to need banks. It's going to be the same old clash that we've seen with tech th- throughout the years, which is they, <clears throat> I'm obviously being unfair to big tech here, but they take other people's content, I think about how the newspapers have reacted, and then siphon off all the data.
1: Yes, and that that has been precisely what banks are objecting to. At the end of the day, a bank makes money. Yes, they, they have a margin on the account, but with today's interest rates, they're not making any money on the account side of uh, things. They pay you zero percent on it, but they're not making money on it either. Um, so they rely on fees and, and payments and all these things to, um, to make money or cross-selling you products. That's a big part of it: cross-selling you loans, you're getting you a mortgage, and getting these other products based on the knowledge they have of your behavior. Now, if you start buying all these products through other parties, through other platforms who, who are acting as a broker there, like Klarna does, then uh, of course their their business model um, becomes very vulnerable.
0: And this is important because this is important for policymakers because we need profitable banks. I mean, we, after the financial crash, obviously, you know, their capital requirements have gone up and so on. They have very, very, very significant regulatory burdens, which uh, have a massive impact on their profits. And in effect, Pintech innovation, welcome as it is for the consumer, does have some impact on the fundamental resilience of the banks.
1: Certainly on their profitability. Absolutely.
0: And what should I as a policymaker be thinking about that? Where do I intervene at this point? Because I've put in place all these regulations that have encouraged fintech innovation, big tick, cheaper, more accessible financial services for the consumer, but much harder for the banks to stay rock steady.
1: Yeah, and I think it comes on, Natasha, you you can jump in here, but I think it comes on two fronts. One is providing a level playing field. Yes. Making sure that people's outside outside a banking license at least have to play by the same rules. So regulate by activity rather than by legal status, mm-hmm. if you if you will. And I think the other thing is having another look at the way they have regulated banks because they may have overregulated activities in banks. Um, and I think the regulatory burden has become so big that people should wonder: Is this still you know is this fit for purpose? Haven't we overregulated parts that are? That may be risky in some aspects, uh, but can't we carve out things? Can we have different requirements and have for different businesses?
2: And the way that they tend to look at things on the payment side is is from a systemic when when the the firms become large enough that they're systemically important, then they tend to fall into into greater regulatory scope and oversight and and, and have other burdens, particularly on sort of resilience and and investments in 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 their infrastructure and so forth. Personally, I find that slightly problematic in payments because payments are systemic to us. No matter whom provide, how small my provider is, if I rely on them for providing my payments, it's systemic to me. It, it's not something I can live without for a day. I need to I need to be able to pay all the time. And we saw that with the with the collapse of Wirecard, where some of the small providers in the UK, most of which actually are used by the by the poorest, the unbanked, were out of business for a couple of days, and so you literally could not use your you couldn't access. Your wages that were sitting on your, you know, on your card, which is very problematic. Actually, you mentioned the unbank. We will come back to that in a minute.
0: Just diving deeper into the sort of public policy realm, the obvious question, the kind of question that everyone is obviously talking about now, and in what is becoming a sort of slightly tedious way, but anyway, it's important. Which is the future of cash? I have used cash, you know, once in the last two years. I have to think consciously about a situation where I might need to use cash. Uh, Otherwise, everything I do is paid for through my phone. I don't even use a physical plastic credit card anymore. Sweden, the inventor of cash, is now uh, probably the country most advanced in the world in terms of people not using cash. Policymakers are discussing, and I think the UK government has made it clear that they will mandate cash availability, as it were, that the banks need to make cash available. What is going to happen to cash? And then obviously, this is a big, big question, so we can bore on for hours on this. Related to that is the arrival of cryptocurrency. What is going to happen with crypto? You might want to deal with these separately. Uh, And then central bank digital currencies, which is countries' attempt to become Bitcoin providers in in essence. And I think I agree with you. I think you say in your book that you could sort of get a bit too carried away with the CBD dc idea because effectively we have digital money anyway what extra layer of uh, innovation would a central bank digital currency bring so to sum up what's going to happen with cash what's going to happen with crypto and what's going to happen with central bank digital currencies and do
2: they matter if you could answer that in the next minute or so that'd be great <laughs> I think the cash distribution prob- uh, problem is far lesser-, lesser than the cash acceptance problem. It's very easy uh, for the government to legislate for banks to provide cash or for X many ATMs to, to, to stay in place per per square mile. It's much more difficult for them to mandate cash acceptance.
1: But by the way, before we go in, that this is one of the examples where you should wonder if you're not putting too much burden on banks. Huh? This is yet another burden we're putting on banks. They have to keep doing cash. Meanwhile, the whole online economy has no... They don't even deal with it. There is there, no question. Should Amazon accept cash? Well, how would that work? Uber, should they accept cash? I don't know. So this is one of the examples of where you should really wonder, are we going to keep putting burden on banks uh, and not on their on their competitors?
0: But it, and it's a classic political problem. I think the government tried to get rid of the penny coin a couple of years ago, and there was sort of outcry in the press. Whether the public actually cared is an, is an open question. Anyway, Natasha, you were saying
2: just that that cash acceptance problem is is far the biggest one to legislate for, and I I don't think there's any good answers for that yet. I know that in the UK we're looking at the post office and so forth, but that doesn't mean that the corner shop will accept cash. Mm. Now, Sainsbury's might find it difficult to stop accepting cash from a political perspective, because just reputationally, it might be it might be an impact. But the corner shop is the pers- is the organisation that pays pound per pound the most f- for taking in pound coins. In theory, it would be the one that would want to move away from them fastest. So it's complicated. I think there is probably possibly some scope for a CBDC to step in to a gap, not to close the gap completely. But you could see a CBDC being used to a certain extent to replace the, the, the gap that's been left by the disappearance of cash. I
0: mean, I think you do say in your book, I hope I'm being fair, that it's slightly overblown in the sense that, you know, we effectively use digital currencies when we do digital transactions. But the bit I can't get my head around is, that, is apparently if we have a central bank digital currency in the UK, it means we can all bank with the Bank of England. It's yet another way of working around the commercial banks. Is that right or not? What t- Tell us about a CBDC and why it Matters.
1: So, so I'm not sure I fully agree with Natasha. This is one of those topics where we disagree. We have healthy disagreements Good. on many things. At last, punch up. <laughs> on a on CBDC, I, at the retail end, as a replacement of cash, I'm not sure I see that. And I don't think it is an alternative for the unbanked because to deal with a CBDC, they will need a mobile phone. I mean, how are you going to deal with a CBDC if you don't have a digital infrastructure in your pocket?
2: I think at the moment that the Bank of England doesn't have locus to require pockets or another organiser, another small card, you know, cash provider to provide an unbanked person with a card for free with effectively a banking service that isn't a banking service for free it also doesn't have the it it does require banks to provide basic bank accounts but back to your point godfrey that's you know that's last century's problem really And and it's putting all the onus on the banks when in fact banking services or payment services can be provided by things that are no longer banks Furthermore, as banks step back from their geographies, which they are, they're closing branches, so there's no natural place for me to, I live in rural Wales, there's no natural provider for me to turn to to say you've got to, you've got to provide me with payment services because there's no one there. So I think, I think a CBDC can be used to sort of level set what the most basic form of payment service is and ensure that that's provided because at the moment there isn't a means for the government to do that. As far as I'm aware.
1: Yeah, and my, my view would be I think the biggest struggle for CBDCs will be exactly that. Why would people adopt them? What, why why yeah. are they so great? And if you look at China, which has been furthest along, the, the EU one, for me, the key insight was that they have now distributed 25 million wallets in China. It's quite a mm-hmm. lot. Those wallets among them have, over the past three months, done 75 million transactions. Mm-hmm. That is one transaction per wallet per month. You compare that to the average of, I think, five Alipay and 10 pay transaction that each Chinese makes per day. And you get a bit of an idea of, of what the struggle is. Why would, I, why would I make payments with these CBDC wallets if I've got these great alternatives? Now, there are things that are very exciting about CBDCs and that would only be possible with crypto-like features. One of them is programmable money. And that is money that automatically does things for you. And I, I can name a few use cases that people are kicking back and forth. One of them is the, uh, the, the those famous non-fungible tokens, which yeah. are essentially a crypto asset that is linked to a real asset, like a piece of art or etc., you could program them in such a way that whenever that NFT changes hand, 10% of the sales price goes back to the artist. That would be one way. You can, you can change business models. Eh? You can program that into the token and uh, every time they get a commission. That's one example of programmable money. Another example would be automatic collateral. You can you can have loans that are automatically collateralized with yet another currency and then long go sour, you can, uh, you can execute the, the collateral. So there are, there are applications, and there, there are, I'm sure there are many applications we haven't even thought of, that become possible because money can itself become embedded in software and you can program it. What, one of the features people are discussing, that central banks are discussing, is to pay negative interest rates on a CBDC, right? I mean, if you really want to do negative interest rates, cash by nature has 0%, so people might flee into cash if you're trying to enforce negative interest rates. Well, with a CBDC, you can program it into the money. So all of those things become possible. The other thing that becomes possible are all the use cases of Bitcoin, which is anonymous, large payments across the whole world. Now, ironically, both programmable money and all that funny stuff of Bitcoin are the ones that central banks may wonder whether they really wanna do that. I mean, do central banks wanna facilitate all the gray uses of crypto? Do they want to facilitate all these these uh, uses of programmable money? Those are those are real questions, but I think they they have to be answered because with without some of those exciting features, I wonder if people are ever going to adopt the CBC at the end of the day.
0: I do love the idea of programmable money. That is the first time I've heard that phrase. Does programmable money make it into your book? I don't remember that phrase leaping out at me. This could be a new this could be volume two.
2: The next edition, Ed. The next edition. I was looking at artist resale mm. rights in the UK uh, as we were working on something related to this, and I believe that in the UK, if something, if I sell my art privately to you, so mm. I don't go through a gallery, I'm not eligible for resale rights. If my item sells from beneath a thousand pounds, I'm also not eligible for resa- resale rights. But with programmable money, all of this would become possible. You know, I could send, I could sell you privately my little sketch for ten pounds. And when you sell it for a million in a year's time, I'd be. I'd get my my 10%.
0: Yeah, I mean, the artist's resale right was brought in to the UK. I mean, it's a European custom, and it's through the auction houses, and it was to level the playing field. You know, the French imposed it effectively on the British when we were members of the EU to level the playing field between the auction houses. But you're right. I mean, you could start with programmable money. You could start having these unbelievably sophisticated use cases between overlaid onto private transactions. So you're right. The The artist could then say... I'm just going to program into my art a 10% commission every time it's sold on. You could do it with anything, classic car. You could do it with any item of value.
1: There, there are more examples. One, one, one other example is these. The, the money that has been given for COVID. So uh, Hong Kong wanted to give a stimulus. They gave everybody the equivalent of a Donald Trump check. So, but they said it will expire after six months. We want to make sure that people don't hoard it. They actually spend it and with programmable money you can easily do that you can give everybody uh, an amount of money and after 6 months it lapses
0: and private companies could do that mcdonalds could give you 10 pounds but say you have to spend it
1: next week uh, vat vat collection you could you could automatically bake in vat collection in any commercial transactions that takes place so lots of things become possible it does however have a bit of a big brother side to it which i think is an interesting discussion to have to How far do central banks want to go down that road?
2: Yeah, I think the other challenge with it, and I think all this programmability is hugely exciting, but I think the other challenge with it is my pound is my pound is my pound. I always know all my euro. I can use it to do anything that a euro or pound allows me to do. I think if you introduce a CBDC with all this programmability around at the the get-go, you might undermine general consumer confidence in what it is
1: so we'll do we'll do the trojan horse there we'll introduce it and only later do we activate the features that will be the uh...
0: look the fundamental point of these podcasts is to try and make me look clever which has been a bit of an uphill struggle on this podcast but it does allow me at least in the house of lords to put down a question to the government saying what is their approach to programmable money and that will just cause consternation in the treasury so we've made real progress in this podcast, but we haven't yet even talked about Bitcoin because, of course, the CBDC in the UK is known as Britcoin. But Bitcoin, what is going to happen with Bitcoin? Because I think my view of Bitcoin, as a, again, as a very much the layman, is it is very much here to stay. And I think it will substantially increase in value because by definition, it is a scarce resource, but it has kind of established a level of trust, which means people are effectively prepared to trade it. And use it.
2: Yeah,
1: I'm still getting my. I, I have to say, I uh, I'm showing my age here because I really struggle with that concept of the scarcity value of Bitcoin. Uh, what do you mean it's scarce? We, we every idiot can come up with its own currency, and they've done. We have Dogecoin. We have. There, they're, I mean, you go.
0: I guess I'm talking about Bitcoin as a brand is a scarce resource. I mean, everyone, every idiot can mine gold, silver, or bronze, but each has a different value.
1: But look at it you you can go go to coinmarketcap.com which is a website they will list all the cryptocurrencies known to man which is 12,000
0: There's a cryptocurrency launched uh, there's a cryptocurrency launched in the name of Elon Musk dog
1: Yeah there we go it's a it's a spoof on dog dog coin and all these things are worth billions by the way eh? so every every dog coin as or dog coin the doge coin as it's called started out as a joke and i think the market cap of doge coin is now 40 billion or something i mean so the idea that they, that they are scarce well up to a point because everybody can just launch a second bitcoin
0: <laughs> okay Gottfried, stop stop mucking about is it the south sea bubble or is it a fundamental revolution in currency?
1: I think a lot of it will depend. I mean, one of the reasons the central banks are so active on CBDCs is that they are seeing that people are using these crypto to do a lot of things that they should be doing with real money, like moving money across borders and reinventing finance, etc. So a lot will depend on on whether people will find these alternatives in programmable money, so to speak, through official means. But indeed, in in my mind, it is a South Sea bubble. But what do I know? And, and again, uh, this is where the authors may disagree.
2: I'm still getting my head around buying trainers in the metaverse and um, oh, yes. to put on my avatar. Uh, so maybe in that, in that uh, world, there is a use for them. I think what's fascinating is, you, is when we think about the problems that the, the, revolution in payments over the last five years have been trying to solve, it's been trying to solve the problem of incompatibility of currencies. You know, the fact that transferring my, our pounds to Godfrey's euros in Belgium requires us to go through convolutive processes and it costs money and it takes time. And there's been a lot of in, in, innovation around that and it's improved things measurably. So why on earth would we want to have lots of different currencies that we are going to have exactly the same frictions? Why would we want to build into our lives, I don't know, Dogecoins for shopping at Waitrose and Bitcoins for going on holiday and something else for shopping at Selfridges? I, it doesn't make sense to me. And I'm not sure, certainly as payment instruments, I didn't see the logic. The last subject I want to touch on
0: is when payment systems go wrong. Because I think that one of the interesting things I found reading your book is, you know, as a former minister who had a role in cybersecurity, and we talk about things like, you know, the electricity network going down and the phone network going down and that kind of thing. And there are two, two elements here, actually. One is, you know, how resilient are the payment systems? Do governments pay enough attention to making sure that they're resilient and robust? But obviously the other thing about a digital payments world is fraud and scams. So they're actually two really separate questions, but they both relate to security. So I'm quite you know, the payment system could go down, you know, this afternoon quite easily, I presume. Because I imagine, like all these things, it's it's pretty fragile and nobody gives a monkeys about it
1: yeah i think that's that's uh, that's too strong it's uh, certainly there are lots of people giving a monkeys about it um there th- th- this is that's one of that's good to hear there are there are central banks that are literally losing sleep over the resiliency of the payment system because at the end of the day that that's their remit so i think a lot of people are working quite hard uh, on that including the payment operators themselves i mean if you look at visa and mastercard they realize that if they're out, um, they'll be they'll be in the headlines. So they do spend an enormous amount to make sure that their systems are resilient, they have backups, they have backup of backups, et cetera. And to be fair to the payment industry, we have seen outages, but we have never seen outages that last for more than twenty four hours. I mean it, a couple of hours, and then they manage to get it back up at the at the end of the day so that the, you have to give the industry some credit but yes that risk is is there of outages some of the resiliency is because we have multiple systems right you have your cards you have cash you have uh, your your debit payments uh, different schemes so there's some resiliency built into the diversity of of mechanisms that we uh, that we have right now now, to move to cyber, I mean, yeah, and, and to, to fraud. I mean, fraud moves with the times, right? When we had cash, we had bank robberies and, and schemes that would defraud people of cash. Then when we had banks and ATMs, we moved into ATM frauds and those types of card fraud, not to be mentioned. I mean, you stolen credit card numbers, etc. And now as payments are becoming electronic, we uh, we, uh, we are reinventing fraud again. And and you get things like WhatsApp fraud. I don't know if that's a thing in the UK, but that was big in Holland where people... Will basically scam older people claiming they're a grandchild with a new phone and can you please, and and they send them a request to pay, which is quite common and yeah people hit on it and boom, uh, a thousand pounds gone to what they thought was their grandchild, but it is a scammer or uh, ransomware for that matter, uh, which is starting to be a real headache I think throughout society, but also for payment systems.
2: Presumably Holland doesn't suffer quite as badly as the UK does on, on uh, banking fraud. I think we've got some of the worst statistics. That's the price
1: the price you pay
2: for having a global language, I think.
0: But you seem quite relaxed, Gottfried. This is the price you pay for digital banking. Well, I, I, I mean... And also you seem very relaxed about outages, so I wasn't expecting that. As a policymaker, I can sit back. I mean, I can basically say everything will be fine in terms of the infrastructure, and I'll do my best to combat fraud and theft. But yeah, I mean, I obviously accept that it's always going to be with us.
1: Well, but, but let, let's first on the resiliency. Am I relaxed about it? No, of course, I'm not, because that only happens because of hard work by the regulators, by policymakers, by the way, who have put in place the requirements and the industry.
0: But I'm pleased that the work is taking place. That's the point.
1: And on fraud, yeah, I mean, so the, the fraudsters move with the times. They're quite an inventive lot, But fraud prevention also moves with the times. I mean, in in card world, initially there was a whole new way of frauding people through stolen credit card slips Uh, the card companies came back with features that make it hard to spoof a credit card slip and the fraudsters moved to magnetic stripe fraud then they had features to prevent that a lot has been prevented by pattern recognition by, by basically spotting patterns that look suspicious and now even using ai so i think it's a bit of an arms race and yeah, we're now, if you look at the crypto world, by the way, we've had some spectacular fraud cases. I think even in the past two weeks, there was one of close to 100 million where one of the crypto exchanges again got hacked um, for those amounts. So we'll, we'll see new forms of fraud. Am I relaxed about it? No. But at the end of the day, I do think that the industry like before will come up with a way to, to make it manageable and, and detect them in time. And deal with them.
2: But it is it is a challenge for the banks, so the banks really are at the, at the centre here, and and then you, you've got very different sized banks, and the way that they can approach things is very, very very different. I and mean, I think we've seen the, the UK, we've seen the owners of the big nine, and that's great. The problem is there's lots of other banks who are not part of the big nine, who might be receiving the, the fraudulent funds. But I, I suspect the time we'll see much more responsibility shifts to the receiving bank, and liability resting with them. So the bank to which the stolen stolen funds are moved.
0: Yeah, I always find it very odd that when you have those kind of mistaken payments, where you know somebody gets the number wrong by one digit, it's almost impossible to get the money back. Very weird. But where will we be? What 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 will it be like? What will this world look like in ten years' time in terms of payments?
2: I mean, if CBDCs are with us and they're a reality. I think the credit cards will be worried.
0: Oh Well, that's a, good, that's a good way to end it. So in 10 years' time, there'll be no cash and no credit cards. <laughs> I think those are two pretty big changes. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media.